the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline. Our God is blessing the ducks this week. Just want to let you know his joy is in taking care of all of his lovely creatures. And so the ducks will have much attention paid to them uh, over the next couple of days. Rain, 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 rain. Last week, this week, rain. Uh, And we thank God for it. And we thank God for the ducks. By the way, I enjoy duck. I don't know about you, but um, be careful. It's raining. It's cool. We have moved into our winter uh, fall season and uh, a lot of inclement weather can be challenging to us. I'm always talking to us about, uh, you know, shoring up our health, making sure that you are uh, loaded up with vitamin C and that your probiotics and and uh, other necessary uh, bionutrients are at hand so that we can strengthen our immune system for this run through the fall. And I want to welcome you to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistin. Glad to be with you and glad you could join us, too, on this ed- uh, Monday edition of Lifeline. December 2. 2019, Pastor Jesse keeping you company on this particular day for the next two hours, if you will, taking your phone calls at one 367 Just trying to adjust, get into the office here. And it's <clears throat> sometimes it feels like uh, we're out in uh, Siberia, freezing cold and have to adjust the temperature and it can mellow down and uh, I can actually do do my business without being distracted by the weather. It's nice now. Um, yeah, I open the lines for questions and comments and observations and things of that nature. You guys know how we do it. So uh, hope that uh, we can uh, put together some memorable thoughts on this Monday as we, uh, again, prepare for the next couple of weeks of which we will be celebrating our Lord's incarnation, not his literal birthday, but the incarnational era of him coming into the world for the redemption of sinners, for the redemption of mankind, for the redemption of his people, for the redemption of his church, um, for all those for whom Christ died. Redemption is the theme uh, as we move into the darkest days of the year, the coldest days of the year. Uh, as the early church uh, sought to battle, not by biblical sanction, but sought to battle uh, winter solstice with all of the pagan rituals around the zodiac and uh, the astrological 
uh, uh, calendar and, uh, and and all of its mythical notions about uh, how the um, uh, the zodiac works in your life. Well, for us, there's one God, one true and living God, and his son, Jesus Christ, is at the center and core of the reality of all life, yours, mine's, and theirs, and we worship the son of the living God, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, knowing that while our days are dark by reason of sin, they are also days of light by reason of righteousness, and that righteousness is found in Christ. So I'm looking forward to that season where we can uh, <clears throat> adorn our homes, adorn our houses, hopefully adorn our hearts. That would be a good topic, wouldn't you say? Um, how to adorn our hearts for this Christmas season in addition to adorning our homes, if that's what you do. doesn't really matter. Um, adornment matters, however. Adorning the gospel with an attitude and and conduct and behavior that is befitting the light of the world of whom we celebrate this time of year. Talking about or thinking about redemption, I think what I want to do today is see if I can stir you up. You know, every now and then movies come out and uh, I'll watch one here or there, maybe a couple of times a year. I think I'm averaging about three movies maybe a year. In the last one we did a a kind of redemptive uh, analysis on was the movie The Black Panther. If you guys remember, we deconstructed it and looked at the different characters and saw the metaphors and the analogies of the gospel in it. And that's what you want to do with all movies if they are redemptive in their value. If they have a redemptive value to them, you can find sin. You can find redemption. You can find chaos. You can find order. You can find a uh, slave and bondage. You can find deliverance and, and salvation. You can find the heroes and the sheroes and others, as I was sharing with you last week about Sophia Humphrey. But today I want to talk to you about a movie my wife and I saw last Friday night as we were uh, taking some some well-needed time off from the Friday study. Uh, we decided to go see the movie Harriet. Now, I don't know if you've seen Harriet. If you haven't, you should. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Go and see Harriet. If you really want to have uh, a reminder of the struggle of history, and you want it from a perspective that gives what I would consider some balance to the historical facts, the very complex, very um, rich, very troubled, very um, um, dark, as well as optimistic elements of the pre-Civil War period, the uh, time of Harriet Tubman and her uh, her struggles to help liberate Africans and black people from uh, the slavery that was uh, imposed upon them in the inception of our country. If you really want a, a, a movie that will help you enjoy what I consider a number of uh, redemptive elements so that you don't just sink into the horror, the wretched horror of slavery and, 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 and not have any light at all, you know, that's really how we ought to frame history. History for all the darkness that lies in it always has some redemptive elements because history is governed by God. It's uh, <clears throat> it's determined ultimately by God teleologically. It is filled with all sorts of uh, uh, responsible agents and components, angels and men. 
But history ultimately is governed by God. And you ought to therefore expect where there is ruin, there is redemption. Where there is sin, there is salvation. Where there is destruction, there is deliverance. Wherever that is seen on earth, you're going to see God entering in as the great um, Eleazar and Ebenezer of God's people to deliver them from those ruins. And, And the human element in it is also quite fascinating. So I don't know if you've seen the movie. What I'm going to do today should stir you up. It should not make you feel like, oh, Pastor Jesse, PJ is just going to tell us everything about the movie. No, I'm just going to give you what I believe are extremely important redemptive components. By the way, if you have seen the movie, I want to, you know, I want to know if you are willing to talk about it and, uh, and and tell me what you saw by way of redemption. If you do have eyes that are exegetical and redemptive in nature, you know how to see movies and programs and events. Remember, truth is an ex- experience-driven reality. Truth is an experience-driven reality. In other words, when events occur— Event-driven reality. When events occur, what emerges out of those events are truths. Lies, yes, but truths as well. So with regards to the movie Harriet, which was a wonderful, wonderful uh, movie uh, uh, filmed uh, in a time back in 1849, some 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 new new uh, new stars. I've 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 never uh, met these individuals who happen to uh, play in these films. Never heard of them. Cynthia Arrivo. She was the main star who plays Araminta or Minty Ross in the movie, uh, taking on her grandmother's name um, uh, as as a kind of uh, an honor to Harriet Tubman for raising up her up in the faith and teaching her the fundamentals of personal dignity, the B-side of theology. And we'll talk about some of that here in a moment. Uh, and then you had other people, uh, Leslie Odom Jr., which we uh, have known about, and uh, Janelle Monet as well, who played William Still. That's uh, Leslie did. And then uh, Monet played Marie Buchanan. She was a mistress owning uh, uh, one of those homes where you can house people. Very, very, very well uh, done. There were other actors that if you watch movies a lot, I don't. Uh, that you would have picked up on their presence and picked up on their uh, con- contribution. But what's what's good about this movie, Harriet, is that, like I said, it wasn't a documentary designed to give you all of the gory details of the wretched depravity of human nature, if you will. It, you got plenty of that. And that is important. It is an essentially important truth to know how wicked the heart is. But this movie lays out such a balanced approach to both the redemptive element and the ruin element that from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, you have the beauty of conflict emerging every five or ten minutes all throughout the movie. The conflict of righteousness, the conflict of ruin, the conflict of hope, the conflict of purpose, the conflict of, of faith, the conflict of guidance, all of those elements, the conflict of laboring uh, in love and working by faith on a number of people collaborating to Uh, liberate the slaves. So whoever wrote this uh, particular uh, segment of Harriet Tubman for this movie and, uh, and uh, the director director is Kazi Lemons uh, remarkably uh, chose to make sure that when we watch it, whether you are white or black or other, what you actually are enjoying is redemption 
from a human element. So the movie for me was wise enough not to play into the hand of politics as you and I are so um, frequently uh, exposed to collapse into one side or the other. You have heard me talk about the dialectical process of left and right, the dialectical process of good and bad, and the dialectical process of, of, uh, of this team and that team, this dualism that automatically pits you against the other side and fundamentally makes them evil all the way through and you righteous all the way through such as Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives. This movie does not allow that kind of build up and affirmation for which I commend the writers. This movie deals with, as I said, the virtue of knowing what's right, the vice of ignoring what's right and the valiancy of those who do what's right because they know what's right in spite of the power of those who ignore what's right. So when we come back from the break, what I want to do is kind of lay out with you some of the principles that I saw in the movie that uh, constitute biblical truths that you and I may be able to talk about. Again, if you haven't seen Harriet, you want to see it. Very good movie, and it's worth it for everyone. When you come out of the theater— you don't come out of the theater of having been robbed of your 6 or 7 or $12 or whatever you may have spent. You don't come out of the theater wishing you had watched another movie. You don't come out of the theater wishing that you had, you know, some soap to wash your hands and wash your eyes and heart like you might do in some movies that while the movie is exciting, it's filled with all kind of profanity and perversity. You know how that goes. This is the reason why I only go to a couple of movies a year because – I really don't want to develop a diet of having to endure so much uh, vanity in terms of uh, just the license to be perverse and wicked and over the top. Even in the comedy films, they just seem to uh, just wallow in grotesqueness. You won't get that with this movie. You will enjoy this movie and you will have a vivid understanding of how to. Watch this now. Engage in a labor of love and a work of faith for what is right in relationship to the righteousness of God in Christ. So I'm going to take a break. When I come back, uh, I'm going to get at it. You can interrupt my uh, narrative as I give you a kind of exegesis of the movie from a gospel standpoint. You can interrupt my narrative. You can tell me where you are, how you saw it, how you enjoyed it. one 367 5329 367-5329 is the number to reach me at on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We're going to take a break. When I come back, we'll pick up right where we uh, left off, dealing with the redemptive elements that can be seen vividly and clearly in the latest movie called Harriet. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. At the time, 523-24 on this Monday edition of Lifeline. Let me kind of chime in as you guys are getting in line on the tarmac to um, to dialogue with me about the movie Harriet. And I really do want to make sure that we kind of uh, follow through on this only because this is a Christian program and my job is to cultivate healthy thinking. Uh, to, to remind you that God is sovereign and that uh, we can enjoy him both on the science side of life facts and figures, and on the art side of life, uh, aesthetics and beauty. The science side, facts and figures, that's, you know, that's the world of life and business as you and I know it in the ABCs. 
and the uh, art side of life is uh, that that part of our life that constitutes beauty and aesthetics and attractiveness and adorning and and is done in a form uh, that is uh, much more inclined to not only entertain us but to educate us through entertainment and hence. This is what I am trying to do with with some of these art forms that I think are are absolutely comic reliefs in the more technical sense of the word. Meaning, uh, this time of the year, life can be very depressing. Right now, we're praying every Tuesday for young people all over the nation and around the world because of the challenges they have in life and a culture that is that is increasingly departing from God because of it. Who wouldn't be depressed in a world filled with so much? Uh, chaos, confusion, trouble, and pain, and hopelessness as we are moving away from a concrete biblical definition of manhood, a concrete biblical definition of family, a concrete biblical definition of morals and ethics. Who wouldn't be depressed in a world where everything is in a pseudo-change process that leaves us without any kind of solid rock as a foundation to stand upon? Who wouldn't want to get high, drunk, and loaded? Who wouldn't want to leave this world in many cases if it weren't for the stability of the gospel that comes by the grace of God uh, in communities where God is honored and truth is um, at the foundation of our epistemology. And so um, this is this is very important. And then when you can find a movie that would also serve the cause of the struggle, because slavery, which is what the movie is about, is a transcendent principle that deals with bondage of which the whole human race is a part of. Everywhere in the world, men and women are slaves. We're all slaves to either God or the devil. And that would also mean slaves to ourselves. And one of the first things that happened in the movie, I told you the movie was fast moving. I enjoy the fast moving scenes. In other words, it didn't hang out in one scene for so long that you, you know, you could take a nap or go down and use the bathroom and come back. It moves quickly. And the first thing that you see immediately upon the opening of the movie, for the most part, are the slaves out in the field doing their work. And uh, 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 what we call uh, Minty, her husband comes up to her slave master to uh, let him know that he has done some research on his girl's family. And uh, he's bringing to Minty or Harriet Tubman's uh, slave master, uh, who happened to have also had been his slave master, but somehow he became free. Because there are many uh, free blacks that are in the movie, which is another beautiful thing. Talk about that in a moment. He comes up to tell um, his uh, his wife, uh, Minty's, a uh, slave master that she was supposed to be free. Now, this wasn't good news to him at all. And uh, as he's talking to the slave master, you can see it in his master's, in the master's face. And nowhere in the world uh, am I going to let her go just because my daddy or my mother, it was one of those two, his father and mother had already uh, stated that uh, upon his death that uh, Minty uh, and her, her mother and her children should be set free. By the way, Minty's mother was still uh, alive. And so the first thing that came up for me when I even looked at the surrounding the the pericope of of the movie was the idolatrous sin culture that dominated the uh, uh, Americas in the 19th century. The idolatrous sin culture. Here's the first principle: you got this black preacher 
that's preaching to the slaves on the step of the master. And that, that's that scenario I'll talk about in a moment. But he's preaching to them about honoring their master and submitting to their master and living uh, virtuous lives. And all of the slaves are saying amen. There's no doubt about that. And yet the master is sitting there hearing the word of God right along with the rest of them and yet not able to recognize how woefully in rebellion to the word of God he actually is. He would profess to be a Christian as well as them, and yet he's perpetuating a massive cognitive dissonance. You guys know that. Well, here's the principle. Uh, The church has often collapsed into the idolatry of culture, the idolatrous sin of culture. And what do I mean by that? Culture has a tendency to exercise greater lordship over professing believers than does Christ. Culture has a tendency to exercise greater lordship over the professing church than than does Jesus Christ and the word of the living God. And certainly this was the big one for slavery in that day. How do you understand God's decree of redemption and salvation, equality of human beings, the necessity of recognizing the human uh, virtue, the imago Dei in all human beings, and yet establish and practice a a wholesale process of slavery that denies the Imago Dei, denies the Lordship of Christ, and denies a real opportunity for which Christ died on the cross, and that's freedom. So I do want to let you guys know that Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, and Jeremiah 5.31 clearly laid out this same contradiction in the nation of Israel. When God told Jeremiah that the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their own mean and the people love to have it. So he told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 5, these people have been told explicitly by me not to collapse into the cultural sins of the society around them, but they're living just like the pagans. And yet they think that they are operating out of the comfort and covering of my grace. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly what was going on in the uh, pre-Civil War era of slavery. What was going on was a major cognitive dissonance, a denial of the fundamental objective of all righteous men to see all men as equal in nature and therefore to seek the highest good of all men, to love their neighbor as themselves. But the slavery so blinded humanity and so blinded uh, American leaders and politicians and, and, and uh, you know, your uh, slave owners, your plantation owners, that they could not at all submit to to the trajectory of biblical truth and submit to and recognize that they needed to let their slaves go. So what the first thing you see in the movie is the idolatrous sin of culture. And that culture was a culture of slavery for profit, to make money, greed. As Christ said, it is impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven by his, uh, by his own avarice is he shut out from the kingdom of God and, 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 and so uh, uh, normative and sanctioned by the culture and the church in that society was the issue of slavery. You and I might say today, you know, if we were living back in that time, we would not be promoting it. But I want to warn you, if you just simply take this principle of the idolatry of culture and begin to filter that principle into your own practice, you will discover by and by that there are elements in your life where culture reigns. Over Christ. Several other principles. One is this. Here's another one that was so clearly shining through that movie. 
that blacks and whites were guilty of slavery as well. A lot of times in this sort of uh, diatribe of arguments between left and right and conservatives and liberals uh, and progressives today around the issue of slavery is uh, the, the, the false argument of making all white people bad and all black people good. Never collapse into that straw man argument. The movie was very clear that there was a selling of all sorts of men by blacks, Portuguese, Italians, French. We know this by history, by the way. Uh, Africans colluded in selling Africans because the problem of sin is universal and the problem of slavery is universal. It was then and it is now. We still have slavery on many levels and you know this. Therefore, it's not an, listen to me now, it's not a uh, ethnic problem only. It's not a matter of black and white. It's a matter of the heart. Matter of the heart. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. The other thing that you want to mark is that uh, back then, as well as in the movie, the house Negro, he enjoyed soup at the master's hand in exchange for the oppression of his fellow Negroes. And also some blacks owned slaves as well. This was true all through the South. So and the North, parts of the North, particularly in the South, that there were areas in which black people who had become prosperous and wealthy and free owned slaves, just in case you didn't know it. So, again, be very careful, children of God, that you don't broad brush this issue of whites are all bad, blacks are all good. Because when we move into the next point that really became prominent for me was that freedom which emerged about five minutes into the movie. It wasn't even long. Freedom in the heart as a virtue is a gift from God. That was the third thing I got because immediately upon the preacher sharing his story about, you know, slaves honor your masters and do good and and live right. And the master now not wanting to receive the news that the husband had brought to him about the 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 decree and uh and and contract and will of his pre of his father to let uh the mother of Minty and her children, which would have included Minty, to let them go upon his death. He did not want to hear that. He didn't want to let them go. And hence the movie starts right there with the conflict. What is the conflict? Freedom in the heart as a virtue is a gift from God. We know that God made us in his image, God's free. Whomsoever the son shall set free is what? Free indeed. Minty and her husband were introducing to the master uh, paperwork that had decreed them to be free upon the death of the master. And he said no. In fact, you know what he did? You know what he did? He took the paper that the uh, husband of Minty had brought to him. And I, I remember when he pulled it out, he says, I got the paper right here. I want to show it to you. You know, you and I have watched slave movies many times, haven't we? Where uh, the, the freed, emancipated slave would pull out his paperwork to show that he's what? Free. And uh, what would happen? They would take the paperwork, tear it up or keep it and deny that man his freedom. Now, here's a very important truth. Now, I saw this before it happened. As soon as he pulled the paperwork out to read it in the hearing of the master, I said to myself, he better have the confidence of having another copy of that emancipation or that statement of decree for Minty's families back with the lawyer that he helped uh, discover this with. Because in a moment, that master is going to take it and tear it up. Here's a principle that you and I want to know. 
This is so very good. Freedom in the heart as a virtue is a gift from God. Watch this now. Freedom has to be fought for. But freedom first comes through a knowledge of a post work or past work accomplished. Freedom has to be fought for, but freedom has to come first from a past work already accomplished. What do you mean? When the husband of Minty shares with the present master the facts of which nobody knew, he was really declaring to the master the gospel of the freedom of his wife and mother and all the children at the death of the previous master and the will of the previous master. Are you following me? Watch this now. The gospel is about the past work of Christ and its impact to liberate men and women who come to a saving knowledge of that past work so that presently we are redeemed and that gospel still has benefits for the future because the inherent decree that her husband was sharing with the master was not only about uh, the master's wanting uh, Minty's mother uh, or Harriet Tubman's mother to be free, but her children too. And what that means is this. The gospel is not only for us, but for our children and for our children's children unto the third and fourth generation of those who love God and would keep his commandments. As you and I hear the message of the past work of Christ, we are to respond to it in the same way that Minty did, in the same way that Harriet Tubman did, in the same way that her husband did. You know what that was? You can tear this paper up all you want to. You can tear the paper up. But thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That believers are living epistles written and known on the hearts of all men. You can take our Bibles and burn them all up. God has called us to meditate upon his precepts, to memorize his words, and the gospel has to be in your heart and in your head so that if they take it out of your hands, you still have it. That's scene one. Very important scene. I've got to take a break and pay some bills. All the lines are filled up. Good. We can have a conversation about that as we deal with the next four or five or seven points that I have outlaid on this very good movie called Harriet Tubman. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan. In fact, it was called Harriet. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back to time 549 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Time flies when you're having fun. All of our lines are full, and I really do want to continue working through some of these comments, but it is important for us to uh, vent the line. So I'm going to start on line number two with Caleb and Hayward. Caleb, are you there? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Jesse. How, How are you? Great. I'm a first-time caller, Pastor Jesse, and I really uh, enjoy uh, Jesse's elaboration on uh, Harriet Truman in the uh, Underground Railroad. Did you movie. Did you get a chance to see the the latest one? No, I've never. I've not seen the latest one, uh, Pastor. Okay. So, but, how can uh, I help you? Yes, basically, uh, I remember you talking about truth. It's an ex- an experience-driven reality. Yes, sir. Uh, you also mentioned about culture, yes. the rise above culture, right? And that people, uh, people in their own minds, because of uh, sin nature, will rise up a culture above the word of God. Yeah. And uh, this is this is prevalent today. It's, it's happening today. Huh? In, in our country, uh, you know, at different levels, at, at the political level, at the business level, at the religious level, 
and you can even go back to what Christ said about the um, the mustard seed that Christianity will grow out of it will grow it will become so big that you will have branches and and I mean there will be um, people that will that will say they are believers but are not truly born again and then he talks about eleven working inside against Christianity and so forth so True. two points I want those are two points I want to I, you know, I want to bring to to your mind, but really, Doctor, um, Brother Jesse, I had a question really concerning something else, and uh, I hate to kind of put you put this aside, Harriet Truman aside, and ask that question. You're you're welcome to ask that question since you're a first time caller. Our uh, our audience is uh, they're able to hold two concepts uh, in their hands at the same time. What would be your question, Brother Jesse? Uh, I used to live in the Atlanta area, and I had to move here to take care of my mom. I'm her eldest son, and so I care gave I live in Hayward, and I'm a true believer, been a believer from 1976, uh, originally from Liberia. Listen, Brother Jesse, I have a dear friend in Chicago who's a true believer, too, and he we usually fellowship, you know, calling long distance and so forth. And uh, about a week ago, he really kind of, I wouldn't say attacked me, but wanted to put me under, under the gun, asking me, Basically, that God rested on the seventh day, which are after all his creation. Why is it that we as Christians do not go to church on Saturday? And I told him, listen, Brother Cole, I, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you too much. I need to read about this myself, and I did the research, and I went from Genesis all the way to Revelation 1.10. And basically, yes, God did set the Sabbath day to be holy, and uh, he required for us. But in the New Testament, when Christ rose, the resurrection was the first day of the week. Pentecost the, the first was on Sunday, too, the first day of the week. And then John in one, Revelation 1.10, so uh, during the last day, in the last day, I was, I was caught up in the Spirit. So basically, I, my question is, Brother Jesse, why do we, I'm confounded, why do we worship on Sunday? Can you, I know Constantine, uh, what you call it, uh, made a decree as a Roman emperor in 321 that that day should be set aside to worship. Okay, but I don't I don't know if Constantine was was truly a believer or not, but he did that. Okay, so I, let me help you right quick. You are you are on a right path by understanding the radical transition between the Old Testament and the New, and our Sabbatarian friends, uh, Seven Day Adventist friends, and sometimes enemies. It all depends on how how accurate their soteriology is versus their unique uh, submission to um, a vision that one of their founding w- uh, women had uh, that that saw a halo around the the uh, Seventh Commandment, uh, the Third Commandment of keeping the Sabbath day, which would be just an absolute farce for the church to submit to uh, the idea that somehow that's a sanctioned day, uh, just an abominable thing. But the church has collapsed into these kind of man-centered uh, convictions before. If you follow the word of God very carefully from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis 2 lays down a principle. It doesn't lay down a law. Nowhere in Genesis did God give an explicit uh, mandate with consequences that the people in general were to worship on the first day of the week. It laid down that principle that God rested. You will never see from Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to the... uh, 
the book of Exodus, where God begins to work with the nation of Israel, where he brings in Torah, where he brings in Mishpat, where he brings in the covenants, that in the covenants, God ordained national Israel. He did not ordain the pagan nations that fell off and rebelled against God from the days of Adam, from the days after Noah up to Moses. He did not command them to keep the Sabbath day. You don't find anywhere in the word of God where God called the Gentiles to keep the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. That's a reach. That's a stretch. It's an assumption on the part of anyone who wants to collapse back into the legalism of the Mosaic system, which is what Seventh-day Adventists do. They collapse back into the legalism of the Mosaic system, which was neither decreed by Christ to submit to, nor the New Testament apostles, they both, that is the master, the son of the living God, and the apostles understood that as a standing principle that applied to national Israel, because according to Exodus 31, God gave them the Sabbaths to keep, to prove that they were a special people set apart by God to be a conduit for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now follow this now, Exodus 33 makes it, 31 makes it clear, I gave you the Sabbath as a sign that you were my people in contradistinction to the nation of Israel, uh, to the nations of the world, the pagan nations of the world were free to do whatever they wanted to do to worship all the pagan gods because they were under condemnation. If you had come into Judaism, now you become a Jew. Now you worship the true and the living God according to the standards and the revealed will laid out in Torah as was given by Moses, his mediator. When we come to the New Testament in the days of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that's still Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are still Old Testament. Therefore, Christ and the disciples worshiped on the Sabbath day. When we get into the book of Acts, we are in the transition period. Christ having died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent. The old covenant was fulfilled. The new covenant was established. Now men and women are coming to Jesus Christ based upon new covenant principles. And nowhere... In the new covenant, as even hinted in the old, is there an explicit command on a particular day to worship? Nowhere. The New Testament saints were liberated in the book of Acts. This is where you see the disciples who are largely Jewish going into the synagogues on the first day of the week to try to convert the Jews. But once the Jews perpetually rejected Christ, Acts 13 Paul said, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And from that point on, you find the freedom to worship the Lord on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, on the fourth day, on the fifth day, on the sixth day, on the seventh day. We have freedom in Christ to worship God every day, not just one day in the week. And then Paul deals with this strictly in Romans 14 and in Colossians chapter 2, where he lays out very clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Because they were all shadows and types and pictures of the reality. And that reality is in Jesus Christ. So now hear me, brother, as I let you go. Every believer is obligated to rest in the spirit. We are obligated to rest in Christ. We are obligated to rest in the gospel. We are obligated to rest in the finished work of Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. The old covenant rest was a type. That's why Moses had to kill that brother in Numbers 14, 15 for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. If we were still obligated to keep the Sabbath today, like your Sabbatarian friends, watch this. They'd all be in hell. Because they would have violated some tenet of the Sabbath law, which said start on Friday evening at six o'clock. Don't do any work until Saturday evening at six o'clock, which is a whole Sabbath day. But who's keeping the Sabbath? The Jews didn't keep it. These pseudo Jews, Sabbatarians, Seven Day Adventists and any other kind of legalists that would say that God's commanding us to come back up under Torah as it was given to Israel as a covenant is a legalistic system that denies the finished work of Jesus Christ and brings men and women right back under the bondage of the law. What I love about what I'm saying, and I got to take a break here, is if you follow church history, Forget Constantine, because the Jehovah Witnesses and Sabbatarians and, and Hebrew Israelites and all kind of people want to jump on, on, on Constantine and make him some kind of second mediator. He never affected the true church at all. His decree as a Roman emperor to establish uh, the first day of the week as uh, the time to worship Christ, well, that was... That was something he did. The pagan kings after them established holy days. The King Henry, King James, all of them established holy days. But the believer is obligated to worship Christ any day of the week. So I gave you Colossians 2 to let you know if you collapse into keeping a physical day, you are going to find yourself abandoning the spiritual day, which is a person and his name is Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest to your soul. You will learn of me and find rest to your soul. The rest that the people of God are called to today is rest in Christ. And you are right. Historically, we have interpreted Revelation chapter one, the Lord's day as the first day of the week. And that's why you see in the book of Acts, a pattern where they began to worship God on the first day of the week. First Corinthians 16, one says, bring the collection on the first day of the week. So we have a very clear biblical precedent and trajectory for moving away from a Sabbath keeping to a first Sunday principle, but it wasn't a law. We are not bound by one day. If that were the case, the church would be dead because enemies have come after the church uh, anywhere they have worshiped. And we have had to be mobile. We have had to adjust. We have had to learn how to worship in caves and in mountains and in valleys. We had to worship where we could, when we could, because we were not a theocracy and we are not a theocracy now. And therefore, our worship is in spirit and in truth. And as Romans fourteen seventeen says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It doesn't come with observation. It doesn't come with these, these codes and legal strictures that really can only work if you have a sovereign land with a sovereign monarch, a, our sovereign government to protect your right to worship on that day. By the way, which is why we still love our country, America, because in America, our Fundamental constitutional principle allow for freedom of religion, which is why we get to take two days off after work and then worship either on Saturday or Sunday, because inherent in our Constitution was a recognition that we need to rest and worship God. But it was not a law, a prohibitive law that we would be punished by. So let your friend know this. By the way, this is on a podcast. If you want him to listen to my commentary on it, have him to do all your Sabbatarian friends, all your 
your brothers and sisters who are just misguided or legalistically bent on not finding rest in Jesus, listen to the podcast. Very clear. Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or a holy day or a Sabbath. For those who are a shadow, the reality of our rest is in Christ. I got to take a break. Bless you, bro. Got to take a break. Pay some bills. When I come back, I'll take the rest of your phone calls on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We'll be right back. 